We come with our brokenness and our problems and our pain. And we come and we worship the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, here we are. And we come as we are. We are people who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We do not stand in our own righteousness and our own good behavior. We stand in the glory of the gospel united with Christ. He is the one who has provided forgiveness, hope, life, peace. And Lord, we're just praying now that as we turn to your holy word, we're asking God that as we open up the pages of scripture, that you would be the one who would once again show yourself mighty and powerful, that you would refine us and fill us. So, Lord, we're trusting in you now. We're asking that working through the working of your spirit, you'd bring the transformation of your people. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want to take your Bibles and find the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament... And as you're doing that, I would like to ask you a question. How does God use brokenness in our lives? I mean, brokenness is when life isn't working right, when our sense of well-being has been challenged. Uh, There's something that is just affecting us deeply. We have a pain that takes away our peace. There's some sort of wound that is taking away our uh, self-understanding of worth or even well-being. And we live in a world of broken dreams, broken relationships, broken homes, broken bodies, broken hearts. In fact, if I was to use just one word to describe our world, it would be the word broken. And there's all kinds of problems. I mean, they, they strike everywhere. They can be problems related and struggles related to being single. There are complications related to our health, struggles related to our sexuality, mental illnesses, bodies, bodies that break down, disabilities. There's abandonment. There's abuse. There's divorce. There's cancer. And it shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we face a pandemic of problems. We are fallen people living in a fallen world. And the question we've got to ask, though, is that does God actually use and have a purpose in the midst of all of our problems? Does God have a purpose in our brokenness? Can he use our pain and our problems and our unfulfilled desires to bring about his purposes in our lives? Like, for instance, infertility. Did you know that 10 to 15% of U.S. couples face and struggle with infertility? And this creates a wide spectrum of deep issues. They can face anger, discouragement. It brings deep questions even in their own faith and their fellowship with God sometimes is completely disrupted by this. Uh, They face oftentimes a lack of compassion. You face a holiday like Mother's Day and for people facing infertility, it's, uh, it could be a day of even misery. And then there's just this deep sense of loss and the myriad of medical questions and a, and a sense of like a lack of control. 
and a lack of compassion. And like one study found that 63% of women who experienced both infertility and divorce said that actually infertility was more painful than even divorce. In another study that looked at women that had a chronic or even a terminal illness that had also gone through a season of barrenness or infertility, they said that it was about comparable, that level of pain. And yet, uh, you know, if you're going through a terminal illness or you've got a chronic illness, it seems like the support gathers and rallies around, but when facing infertility... Oftentimes, there's just a lack of understanding, a lack of compassion. In fact, you might even hear little platitudes like, just, sweetie, you just need to count your blessings, and it doesn't help. The pain is raw, and it is real. You know, brokenness over infertility actually featured in the story of one of the greatest people in the Bible. Her name is Hannah. This woman whose name means grace and her faith was forged in the fire of this kind of adversity. How does God use brokenness in our lives? Well, the first thing we're going to see as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 1 is that he brings about a greater awareness of our need for him. So take a look, 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, and Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So here we have this family, we could call it as such. They are living about five miles north of Jerusalem. We see that Elkanah is actually a Levite, which means that he serves at the tabernacle, which is located in Shiloh, which at this point is about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. And that is what he does. But he also seems to have some wealth and property. And and we can see from this situation here that he has two wives. Now, it's very possible that Hannah was his first wife, but because that she could not have children, he actually most likely then married the second, Penina. And I want you to know that um, what Hannah was facing was a significant tragedy in the ancient world. See, the idea is that to be able to provide children, especially a son that could carry on the family name and could be the one that would be the heir that would receive the inheritance, the property, carry on family business, well, all of that just was not a possibility. And so it's likely that at this point that Elkanah married Penina. Now, you don't have to be a marriage and family therapist to know that this situation is far from ideal. And we see, verse 3, now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And so we see that they'd make this annual, annual trek, and they would go, and he'd bring his whole family, and they would celebrate and have a a time of worship. And that's what you see right here. In fact, you see in verse 4, And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, 
He would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. And so we see that they were at the feast. This is likely then the Feast of Tabernacles, which would be kind of in the September, October season of the year. Uh, It was a feast in which the worshipers would share in the sacrifice so that some would be given on the altar, some to the priest, and those who were worshiping would also partake in this feast. And that is what is taking place here. And yet we see here in this time of feasting that uh, Hannah would be given a double portion. We don't know if this was the, uh, Elkanah would do this because he felt sorry for her. Maybe Hannah was his favorite. But he definitely bestows upon this honor of giving her this double portion of this food, of this sacrifice. But I want you to see the difficulties in her life. Look at verse 6. Her rival, that word means the one who vexes, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. I'll tell you what, this Panina, she was a work. She would just shred Hannah, malign her, provoke her, insult her, keep rubbing it in her face. I have all these children, I don't even know what to do, you know? And you seemingly don't have none. Hey, could you watch these kids here for me? I need to run over here. And I want you to know, and this deeply affected Hannah. In fact, we, we see it. In fact, at these feasts, this would be kind of like the equivalent of being like at Thanksgiving. Uh, we're finding here that um, Hannah, at this point, she just couldn't even eat. She is deeply distressed. Did you see that? She, she wept and simply would not eat. I want you to know that uh, motherhood is most certainly not the only role for women. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great blessing, but you don't have to be a mother. You, in fact, you don't even have to be married. God calls men and women to be single, to be able to devote a lifetime of having undistracted service and worship to Him. And there are many women that will not have children. But you need to understand that God has purposes in women's lives that go beyond just being a mom. I mean, for instance, you can look in the Old Testament, you see Moses' sister Miriam, a great leader, never married, no children. You've got Deborah, one of the great judges. Now, she was married. Her husband, uh, you know, lacked a lot of desirable characteristics, but she really was used greatly by God. You look at Lydia, that great businesswoman. She was the very first person in Europe to believe the gospel and to place her faith in Christ. You have Priscilla, who was married to Aquila, and they functioned as a couple, and God used them greatly, like as missionaries in Europe in the early church. And so I want you to know that marriage... And having children, it's referred to as the grace of life, but it's not that you have to be married or you have to have children. And what makes this so difficult, did you notice there in verses 5 and 6, two times it says that 
Yahweh, the Lord, closed her womb. And I want you to know that that's a struggle for us to even read. We don't want to think that God would do that. We would like to think that, well, just, just by chance, that that's what happened. Or somehow Satan was involved in the details and, and prevented pregnancy from happening, but that's not what it says. It said that the Lord closed her womb. And we need to know that when disaster happens, crisis, problems of, of any stripe, certainly infertility, but wherever it might be, you need to know that our troubles belong to God. He's even in the midst of them. And that tells us that God can redeem them, that we are not beyond God's power, that he can use even the most deepest, painful difficulties in our life and redeem them and use them for his purposes. And I want you to know that many women can relate to Hannah and the grief that she's experiencing. Yes, men, husbands can too, but it's very unique actually for the women that are going through this. And I want you to know it's not wrong to grieve things that perhaps a desire that you have and yet it's not working out, or bodies that just are not functioning the way that one might hope, or that you actually are facing some sort of bodily breakdown. It's not wrong to grieve these things. In fact, that kind of honest grief before God will bring you to a place of greater awareness of your need for him. And that's what we see in these verses. I want you to know all the troubles that we face, all these difficulties, they have a purpose, like we're seeing here, to bring us to a greater awareness of our need for him. Well, look at verse 8. Here's Elkanah, typical male. He's going to step in and try to fix it. Look at verse 8. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? And then look, look at this. Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, I just want to say, you know, got a guy? I don't think he thought this one through. I mean, what, what possibly was he thinking when he said this? Uh, you know, this is a huge stretch. Aren't I better to you than like ten sons? Did she think? Did he think that she was going to go, oh, yeah, you're brilliant. I hadn't thought of that. Like, oh, of course you're better than 10 cents. You know, actually, that's not the case. And yet, here we have Elkanah, and he, he doesn't really understand. I want you to know that even your spouse, there's areas of your heart that even they really can't touch to understand just the depth that is going in. But I want you, want you to know there is one that, that can God. And that is what we find. God brings brokenness into our lives to bring about a greater awareness of our need for him. And that's what's happening here. But there's something else. God uses brokenness to bring about a greater dependence upon his presence. What would you do if you're Hannah and you're just are despairing? You can't eat. You're depressed. 
You're weeping. What do you do if you have unfulfilled desires? Do you complain? Do you lash out? Do you just go cold and silent and you're just going to be the brick wall here for the next three months? What, what do you do? Do you get all religious and think like, well, somehow I'm going to be able to earn God's favor? I want you to take some cues from Hannah. Take a look at verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli was the priest. The priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord, to you, to Yahweh, all the days of his life. And a razor shall never come on his head. So here we find what Hannah does. She goes to the tabernacle, and she goes there to worship, but specifically to pray, to pour out her heart before God. Now, Eli, he's officiating there, and he is, he's kind of taking this all in. He's, he's watching this, but I want you to see the depth of Hannah. I want you to know that suffering brought about a greater dependence upon God. It's through suffering that Hannah really grew. In fact, we see, just even looking at verse 11, that she grew in spiritual depth. Notice she refers to Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Do you know that Hannah is the very first person in the Bible to refer to Yahweh as the Lord of the armies? The Lord of the armies, the heavenly, angelic, and even earthly powers. He is the absolute Lord. He's the Lord of the hosts. I want you to know that pain made her a great theologian. She grew in spiritual depth. And notice what else. She, she grew in submission. God used brokenness to really refine her understanding of the importance of seeing yourself as a servant of God. Did you notice that in verse 11? Three times she refers to herself as a maidservant, a female household servant. She sees herself as completely submitted to God. I want what you want. I have grown to realize that life isn't about me. Life is about you. And I am just wanting to be your servant. I want you to know that the strength and the security that you and I long and yearn for, that sense of peace and well-being, of being deeply and completely loved, to be fully understood, it's found when you see yourself as a servant of God. If you keep fighting this and, ah, it's about my life and your best life now and to do it on your own and it's all about you, I want you to know that all that advice, though common, is leading you down the wrong road. Peace comes from knowing and serving God. And Hannah knows this. That's why she refers to herself as the Lord's maidservant. And one other thing I want to point out in verse 11, this is just such an amazing prayer. 
I want you to know that through suffering, Hannah learned the, the privilege of sacrifice. She learned that being in relationship with God is not about just always receiving, receiving, but also about giving. And that's what she's doing here. She makes this vow and says, God, would you be willing to give me a son? But not a son just for her. Like, I will be fulfilled if I have a son, so you need to do this for me. But rather a son so that I may give him to you. Not for my fulfillment, but for your purposes. And you notice in verse 11 where she speaks of like not having a razor come uh, on his head. Like You're like, what, what does that mean? That was one of three uh, responsibilities or three stipulations of a Nazarite vow. And that's what she's saying. I am going to give you this son to serve you forever. Now, a devout Israelite couple uh, was told that they needed to present and give their firstborn son to God. But there was also a provision made that you would redeem that son. You can see this in Exodus 13, 13, as well as like Numbers 18, 16. And for five shekels, you give this five shekels, and it spoke of redeeming. But it was the idea that this child belonged to the Lord. But what Hannah is doing is saying this. I'm not going to give five shekels. I'm going to give you this son to serve you for a lifetime. Now, a Nazarite vow, it wasn't oftentimes taken, and when it was, it was usually for like several weeks, occasionally maybe for a few years. This is the only occurrence that we have in the Bible of someone actually making a Nazarite vow for another, and in this case, Hannah, for a son that hasn't even been conceived. She asked the Lord, will you remember me? And I want you to know the point of her prayer is not so much a son for her, but actually a child and a son to serve God. We oftentimes think like, well, I just want God to work things out for how I think life should be. You make my life fulfilled. You're my friend. You're my celestial Santa Claus. You provide the things that I need so that I can have life like I want it. Life like my neighbor, like my friends, like, like a life like I've always dreamed about. But I want you to see that spiritual depth is saying, God, it's really about you. You see, having children for her, this wasn't for her sake, it was for God's sake. And when she's presenting this, she's offering this as a recognition of that sort of spiritual depth and understanding. And notice that she's praying and pouring out her heart. I want you to know that when we do this, this is an expression of our faith. It is telling God, I know that you are ultimately in charge and I know that you care and that you love me. And that's why she's praying like this. She knows that God can redeem her suffering. And so she's praying in earnest. Charles Spurgeon was right when he said, anything is a blessing that causes us to pray. Isn't that good? Anything is a blessing that causes us to pray. 
Why is that? Because the difficulties, the challenges, the need, the unknown, they bring us to a place of dependence upon his presence. And that's one of the the great blessings of brokenness. It brings us to a place where we just absolutely need him. And if you're wondering, well, okay, wow, I'm, I'm seeing prayer, and I can see depth in this prayer, but what, what do I pray about? I mean, honestly, if you want to grow deeply in your dependence upon God, what is it that you'd pray about? Well, take your cues from Hannah. Pray about your problems. I'm sure you have them, don't you? I've got my share. What is it that just hits you at your core, keeps you up at night at different times? What is that great struggle? Maybe you've got loved ones that are lost. Maybe you've got a child or two that is just absolutely going in the wrong direction at 100 miles an hour. What is it that's created such consternation? Maybe you've been maligned. Maybe someone that you really counted on actually abandoned you or turned on you. What is it that's this great difficulty in your life and these struggles? Take them to the Lord. Look at your own sinful heart. I mean, aren't you just like, what is wrong with me at times, you know? I, I say that like, how in the world did I get going in that direction? See, these are the matters that we take to God in prayer. And he's so sufficient. In fact, he wants to meet us there. And so we learn from Hannah. And so what keeps us from praying like this? Well, I'll tell you. It's pride. It's self-sufficiency. It's some sort of vague illusion that we really just don't need God. That's where brokenness comes in. Brokenness brings us to a greater dependence on his presence. And that's what she's doing. She's crying out for help. And let me just show you one other thing about brokenness. Brokenness not only brings us to a greater awareness of our need for God, brokenness also brings us to a greater dependence upon his presence. But it is brokenness that also brings a greater depth to our faith. Well, look at at verse 12. Now, it came about that as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. Now, if you want to see just how great things were spiritually in Israel at this time, look at the conclusions that he draws. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought that she was drunk. (laughs) And then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. So this gives us a really good idea of just how terrible the spiritual condition was in Israel at this time. I mean, they had a weak army. They're just about ready to get defeated by the Philistines. The the whole spiritual leadership structure was completely a wreck. And Eli, the spiritual head, the leader the guy who's serving as the chief priest there, he assumes that when he sees someone in the tabernacle and their their lips are moving, that this person must be drunk. I I tell you, 
Talk about uh, compassion from a spiritual leader. This guy just doesn't get it. I mean, have you ever been like Hannah where you feel like someone just doesn't understand you? That's, she must have been just shocked that he would draw this kind of conclusion. And yet here she is. And, and I want you to see, do you see how she responds? Watch this. You want to see what grace in action looks like? You want to see someone living out their name, Hannah, Grace? Look at how she responds to this insult. He tells her, you need to sober up, stop drinking, and get out of here. Look at how she responds even in the midst of the depth of her grief and pouring out her soul to the Lord. Verse 15, but Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. And then Eli answered and said, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Do you see this? She, she goes back. Her prayers haven't been answered, but she has that settled, profound sense of peace that comes from trusting, knowing, having faith in the living God. And so she, she goes away and she eats, and her face is no longer sad. Now look at verse 19. Then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. This has the idea that God is stepping in to act. The Lord remembered her. In verse 20, and it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. So God steps in. He acts. He remembers. It's not like God has a faulty memory. When you see this in the scripture, it is speaking the fact that God is acting on behalf of a person or for a group of people. And so, she actually conceives and she gives birth to a son and she calls him Samuel. It literally means name of God. But in the Hebrew, it sounds like heard by God. And that's what she names this child. And then look at this, verse 21. Then the man, Elkanah, went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. Now, um, a wife in this time was, could make a vow, but a, a husband could say, you know what, I don't think we're really going to do that. But he obviously agreed with this vow, and so it came time to then like go before the, the Lord with this feast, and he says, now is the time to fulfill this vow. But look at this. Um, Hannah, verse 22, did not go up. For she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. And then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there 
forever. She says, the, the child is yet not weaned. She goes, the next time I'm going up to Shiloh at the tabernacle, the focal point of our nation where God's presence resides, the next time I'm going, this son of ours, Samuel, will be weaned, and I'm going to hand him over for, the, for a lifetime to serve the Lord. Elkanah agrees, and so he and the rest of the family head up to Shiloh, and she stays back. And you might think, like, well, um, Hannah's, you know, she's using some stall tactics, you know, and so she came up with this idea. Now, uh, children were often not weaned until about age three due to the fact that there was no running water in any of their homes, and a lot of the water was contaminated. But she's not stalling. In fact, she does exactly as she says. Look at verse 23. Now, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of Yahweh, the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. The moment that he's weaned, they're not waiting for another feast. She says, it's time. I have made a vow. I have promised. I'm going to deliver. And so when you would make a vow, there would be certain things that you would bring. And that's what she is doing. She is bringing all the things that you would suspect for the fulfillment of a vow, bull, a flower, and wine. In fact, she brings them in abundance. In fact, some of your Bibles may even say that she brought three bulls. She is bringing all of this to show her devoutness, her faith, and her joy. It's way beyond anything that was ever required. She is showing her heart and her faith. But the greatest sacrifice is not the bull and all the flour and the wine. The greatest sacrifice she's giving is the very son whom she prayed for, Samuel himself. And we see this great generosity and the heart that conceived it. Do you see the spiritual depth of this woman? She's mature. She's grown. This brokenness, this trial has made her a very deep, worshipful, sacrificial woman. And there they are. And notice verse 26. She felt compelled to go to Eli and say, look, what God has done. Look at verse 26. And she said, oh, uh, she brings all this uh, to the house of the Lord. And notice here in verse uh, 23, Alcana says, listen, let's do as you said. Verse 24, after the child was weaned, she took him up. We brought the sacrifice. Look at verse 25. And then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the boy to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy, I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. She takes makes the sacrifice. She tells Eli and bears testimony of what God has done. And notice, 
she takes her son Samuel and presents him to the high priest to say that he is to serve at this tabernacle forever. And notice what it says, and he worshiped the Lord there. Even though he is a young boy, he has understood the importance of worship of God. It's something he has learned from his mother. I want you to know at the birth of the monarchy in Israel, it all gets started with focus on one family, specifically one woman, Hannah, this woman of tremendous grace who modeled reverence and obedience to God for an entire nation. Never underestimate the influence of a godly life. And I want you to know that Samuel, he grows up and he is one of the great people of the Bible. In fact, he holds three different roles. You've got Moses and the next guy that, that is like of his stature is Samuel. And, he, and Samuel has three roles. He is a priest. He's born into a Levitical family, and so he serves as a priest. He is also a judge. He is the last great judge that brings about decisions and discernment and offers leadership for the people, and he is the first of the great prophets that God sends. In fact, he is going to be the prophet that is going to actually anoint the first two kings of Israel. And he, is be, he will be the prophet that will set in motion the messianic line, the one of the son of David, the, by actually crowning David the king, by anointing him that this is God's promised king. I want you to know Samuel is involved in all of this. All of this is birth out of brokenness. Did you know that brokenness is how God brings us to himself through faith in Christ? Later on, there's going to be a prophet by the name of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, he says, God has him record this, and it's written, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Isaiah 53 speaks of the great suffering servant, the Messiah, the one who would pay for the penalty for sins, the one who would redeem his people. But the only way that'll happen is through brokenness, just as it is described. That's why, like at communion, we celebrate God who actually sent his son to be broken on our behalf. Remember like in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, it's, Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Like it says in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Friends, it's only through brokenness that you and I will ever know God. The brokenness of the Son showing us the brokenness in our lives and having us put our faith in Him who has conquered sin, death, hell. He's the Savior of the world. Friends, God uses brokenness to bring wholeness. 
And I want you to know for Hannah, her great joy was not her son, not even watching her son and all that would take place in his life. Her great joy is God. In fact, you can see that in chapter 2, verse 1. We have her song, her prayer. And notice how it begins. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. In the end, her joy is not Samuel. It's God. It's the Lord. Friends, what is the one thing in your life that just causes you deep consternation? It is the major feature of brokenness in your life. God has not brought this for us to be embittered, to be in just these constant states of anger or depression. They are from his hand to bring us to him. God brings wholeness out of brokenness. And sometimes you might hear like before a worship service, hey, leave all your problems outside. Actually, you want to do the opposite. All of your problems, your pain, your broken and unfulfilled desires, the hurt in your life, you bring them to God in worship. You see, God uses brokenness to bring wholeness. And friends, this is what Hannah has learned, and this is what we must learn, that God uses our pain for his great purposes. God's not in a rush, but he is at work, and he will remember his people. So remember this, God uses brokenness to bring wholeness. Let's pray. Lord, here we are. (laughs) That's us. You know all about our brokenness. It shows us our great need for you, especially our sin. For someone who is watching and taking part of this worship service today, who has never really, truly trusted your son, would they just say right now with me and pray, God, I I am broken. You know my pride and my arrogance. You know my immorality. You know my sin. You know the bad things that I've done. You know how I'm so self-sufficient. God, I see that that misses the mark and I confess my sin to you. I repent. I ask that you forgive me. You forgive me, and you fill me, and you will lead me. I believe, Lord, that you bring wholeness out of brokenness. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, Lord, may we be like Hannah and bring the anguish and the pain and the things that really bother us and help us to see you are at work even in the midst of these things, not to make us bitter, angry, despondent people but people that find our delight, joy, identity, purpose, and peace in you. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen.